This week, we reported that astronomers have gotten access to James Webb and revealed features on the surface of two Kuiper Belt objects, Eris and Makimaki, and determined that based on the isotopes of the hydrogen in the methane on their surface, they realize that these two worlds have some kind of geochemical process. There's some kind of like cryovolcanism, something inside is making methane, and then it's somehow getting out onto the surface. And as we were reporting this at Universe Today, one of the researchers reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do an interview about it. And I said, absolutely, yes, please. So my guest today is Chris Glein. He is with the Southwest Research Institute and is one of the people who were able to get this time on James Webb to analyze these two worlds, to make this fascinating discovery. We talk about how they found it, how they knew that it was coming from inside these worlds. And then, of course, what are the implications? What does this mean for rogue planets, for exoplanets? Are we on our way to figuring out some kind of biosignature? So enjoy this fascinating interview. Chris, what does it look like when you are, like see those first pictures of Kuiper Belt objects taken by James Webb? Is it, is it still just a dot? It's a little more than a dot. It's, it's like a handful of dots. In one of our papers we just published, we, sh we showed the images of Iris and Makimaki and they're, they're about nine or 10 pixels a piece. So it's more than a dot, but not, not too many extra dots. But is that the most dots that anybody has gotten? That's the most that I'm aware of. Yeah. The, the really interesting part about these dots though, is within those dots, we get spectra, which yeah. are the different colors of light. And that's what's key to understanding their chemistry. So, okay, so, so your research is you know, you were able to analyze the surface of, of Eris and Makimaki with, with James Webb. Was, like, was this easy to get time on the telescope to do this work? No, it's, it's very competitive. Uh, actually, the time allocation predates me. The, the original team that wrote this proposal, it's under what's called the Guaranteed Time Observation Program. And this is where some of the scientists who helped with the development of the mission as a reward for all their hard work, they were allocated certain blocks of time. And so then these astronomers thought, well, it'd be really interesting if we were to use James Webb to look at Eris and Makimaki. And so that's what they did. They wrote a proposal, I think it was around 2017 or so, where they when they first planned these observations. So that was like back when like the first, like cycle one was just being worked out at that point. Yeah. So these are part of cycle one. And I should, before I move on, I should give a shout out to some of my collaborators, namely Will Grundy, Jonathan Lunin, John Stansbury. These guys were instrumental in making this happen. So you get the time. So how much time did you, were you able to look at each of the objects for? Each object got about two hours. So it's, it's pretty good, actually, for one individual yeah. object. Uh, just to put this in context, we looked at Enceladus a couple of years ago now, and it was just for um, about 10 minutes or so of observing time. I didn't realize that because so, we reported on that news about the, the images of Enceladus and the discovery of stuff on the surface of Enceladus. And that's just 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, the, the kind of the rough number that I run in my head is that it's about a 50 times multiplier. So two hours of, of web time is 100 hours of Hubble time, if you could have gotten it. 
Wow, I didn't know that. That's, that's that I bet you know I've sort of like talked to people and this is sort of what I've been able to synthesize so far. I don't think this is official, but you know uh, there was like like when it comes to like deep like doing like deep sky stuff, seeing stuff right at the edge of the universe, that stuff they're getting about a fifty times multiple in 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 how much how less time they need. Um, uh, so okay, so you so just a couple of hours for each target. Yep. Okay. All right. And so you say you got the spectra. So what were you looking for? Well, originally we were, we were looking to see if we could confirm what had previously been found. So um, earlier using other facilities, people found evidence of abundant methane. When you look at these objects, they have really deep absorption features in their spectra of methane ice. So you wanted to first see, um, you know, can we confirm that methane ice is really abundant on their surfaces? And then we did find abundant methane ice. And after that, then we started to look at some of the new features. So it's really interesting is from earlier observations with Hubble and other facilities, you could look um, to wavelengths up to about 2.5 microns. And then once you get past 2.5 microns, uh, the Earth's atmosphere becomes your enemy. You can't see a lot of the telltale features of molecules you'd want to be able to observe. But because James Webb is in space, we don't have that problem. So it was like a, a new perspective of this brand new part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And we were able to look for new, fe new features of molecules on their surfaces. And now, I mean, methane, you had, had hints of methane before, so this wasn't a giant surprise. And methane's been seen across many of the objects in the, in the outer solar system. But you discovered that the methane had a unique flavor to it, right? Yeah, that's right. Because if, if you see methane, of course, it's, it's very interesting if you're a planetary scientist. And you might wonder, uh, these objects have so much methane apparently on their surfaces. Where does all that methane come from? But you're kind of stuck if you just know it's methane because there's a lot of ways for a planet or a moon or other object to acquire methane. And so until we were able to find the special flavor that you mentioned, and what the special flavor is, is a different isotopic variety of methane known as deuterated methane. So, you know, this is kind of a fascinating topic because, you know, here on Earth, methane is largely the process of bacterial life burping cows. It's from life. Yep. Um, and yet we, we see like on uh, Titan, there are seas of methane and we see methane on the surface of these, of these worlds. So I would love to know what are those pot, what are those sources of methane in the outer solar system? How can you get it just naturally forming? Yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of people, this is even before me, um, thought about how you could get methane out there. And it was motivated, like you say, by finding it on Titan first. And we've come to understand that there's probably like about three or four different varieties of ways to get methane. Probably the, the simplest uh, source of methane is what's known as primordial methane. So if you look at comets or if you look at interstellar clouds, you find methane out there. And so you can imagine that if these icy bodies formed by um, lots of comets accreting together into bigger bodies, then those building blocks could have contained methane which then outgassed towards the surface. So that's one approach. And then some other newer ideas that have been developed recently is the notion that maybe these bodies, if you're big enough, 
could cook out methane, where you could start with like CO2 or carbon monoxide and then combine those with hydrogen to make methane through some type of high temperature geochemistry. Or another approach is if these bodies started with primordial organic compounds, so the stuff that you find in meteorites like carbonaceous chondrites or comets, you know, it's kind of this dark, uh, tarry looking material. If that stuff is cooked up in the presence of water, it can make methane as well. And, and, and it has to be done in warmer temperatures. Like it's not a, a thing that could be done in the cold. Yeah, we think as far as we can tell, you, you have to have warmer temperatures because you have to be able to make and break chemical bonds. And it's very difficult, um, especially at the surfaces of these bodies, because their surfaces are around 30 to 40 Kelvin. So it's yeah. very similar to Pluto. So cold. And so, I mean, so it's the thought that they're forming closer into the solar system and then migrating outward or... Is there just, I mean, when I think about like astronomers have found the presence of methane and methane and other kinds of things, even just in clouds of gas and dust out there in the universe. And as you said, in, in asteroid samples, comets, things like that. So does that mean that they had to have spent some time in a warmer environment? Well, it means that the methane molecule might have come from a warmer envi environment like the interior of these bodies. Uh, it's possible these bodies could have formed at closer, you know, closer to the sun also. There's this new idea that um, in the early solar system, when the planets were first forming, there was a lot of chaos where planetary orbits changed and um, the big heavyweights of our solar system, like Jupiter and Saturn, they moved and through their uh, orbital evolution, they kind of pushed a lot of other things outward and so the current thinking is that maybe bodies like uh, Pluto, Eris and Makimaki, they might have formed closer to the sun. And in response to Jupiter and Saturn migrating, they were pushed outward into uh, orbits beyond Neptune into the Kuiper belt. Right, right. Okay. So let's go back to that, the flavor of methane that you found. And you said it was, was how did you describe it? Yeah, it's, they're called isotopes. So a methane yep. molecule is composed of one hydrogen atom and four hydrogen atoms. Uh, Wait, one carbon one, and four hydrogen atoms. Right, yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, I should know chemistry since I'm a chemist. Yeah. Um, anyway, so each of those atoms can have different isotopes, and an isotope means that the nucleus of an atom has a different number of neutrons. And so that, that affects the strengths of chemical bonds, it affects the weights of different atoms, and it's really important um, for tracing pathways of forming molecules and how they have evolved. Because for the Earth, for example, we've learned through studies of isotope geochemistry, it's called, that we can trace, you know, where, where did water on Earth come from or where did the atmosphere come from? There's just a ton of questions that you can answer if you can measure these isotopes. So they're kind of like a, a hidden toolkit that we had been eagerly anticipating for the outer solar system, but we had not yet been able to use. And so what are the possible isotopes of hydrogen that you were hoping to see? Yeah, the two main natural ones are called uh, protium, or we just usually call it hydrogen. So it has a mass of one. And then the other special one is called deuterium, which has a mass of two. 
And deuterium was discovered uh, near the beginning of the atomic age. So in the 1930s, it's a Nobel Prize awarded for discovering deuterium. So it was, a, it was a big deal. And it's thought to actually have formed in the Big Bang. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So this time when the entire universe was like the inside of a star and you got a certain ratio of that deuterium forming in the universe. And so whenever you you know that, that primordial ratio and then if you see uh, – hydrogen you can measure it against that and so what did you what did you find so what we found is we, we measured you know these these spectroscopic features i mentioned on the surface in this new window of wavelength and we found these beautiful um features or you know absorptions astronomers call them due to methane where you replace one of the hydrogen atoms with a deuterium and when you do that you you see this new feature it's it's very cleanly resolved it's a lot of astronomers I've talked to say it's beautiful. You've never, mm. you've never seen these kind of features on these bodies so far away before. And from these features, you can actually then make models of the surface to figure out, well, how much normal methane do you have and how much of the special de deuterated methane you have? And when you do that, then you can derive what's called the deuterium to hydrogen ratio. It's called the D to H ratio. And then once you have that, then geochemistry geochemical approaches can start to be used and then the toolbox becomes opened. Okay. And so, and so I guess, I don't know if the ratio matters, but, but the ratio told you something, right? Yeah. The ratio told us a lot. It's a, it's a really difficult measurement just to kind of emphasize how Webb was so powerful. Um, for each, for each um, hydrogen isotope, you know, hydrogen atom, normal hydrogen atom, you will, for each, um, I should rephrase that. For 10,000 hydrogen atoms, you have one deuterium nucleus. So deuterium is quite rare. So it's kind of hard to find. And what we found is that once we know the D to H ratio, then you can start to test those hypotheses of how you make methane. So you can imagine, well, okay, if the body formed from cold, icy building blocks like comets, uh, what would you predict the DDH ratio to be, or if it was if methane was cooked up through one of these these geochemical scenarios, what would you predict the DDH ratio to be? And we could make these predictions and then compare them to what we found with the James Webb Space Telescope. And and so, what model made the most sense? Uh, well, two models emerged that are consistent with the data, that, and both of them inv involve cooking methane. The one that uh, surprisingly didn't match the data is the primordial cometary building block type model. Um, we were very fortunate because um, about 10 years before the time of James Webb, we had this mission from the European Space Agency called Rosetta. It orbited this comet called 67P. And that mission had a mass spectrometer that was able to measure the D to H ratio in um, methane coming off the comets. And so that was our first hint. We, we had this indication for what primordial cold methane from cold building blocks should look like. And the D to H ratio was very large. So that was one factor. And then we, we compared that to the data from James Webb. The D to H ratio from James Webb on Eris and Makimaki is about 10 times lower than from the comet. 
Right. So comments aren't a source, probably. So, yeah. So it's super exciting because when I first got into this project, I thought, okay, this, this is going to be an easy paper to do because we'll we'll look at the DDH ratio. It'll be similar to these this comet, and then the story will be okay. These bodies form from cometary building blocks, and oh look, we find something that match, and it'd be easy. Uh, mm-hmm. But it wasn't easy because it doesn't match. Right. So what's left? So what's left is we compared the DDH ratio from Iris and Maki Maki methane, and it actually is very similar to the DDH ratio of water that we find in comets. The water in comets has a lower DDH ratio than methane. So you might be wondering, well, how do you get how do you get the DDH signature from water to go into methane? And we think that the, the most likely solution to explain that is you cook up the methane in hot water. Wow. Okay. And so what I guess where's your source of hot water on Eris and Makimaki? Yeah, it's a great question because these, these bodies are very cold and icy out there, but we think that they're big enough where they have a, enough rocks in their interiors. You can look at the bulk densities of these objects and their densities are kind of in between ice and normal rocky materials. So we think there, there are some kind of mixture of ice and rocks. So we can't see the rocks on the surfaces, but we think that rocks are buried deep within the interiors of these bodies. And it turns out that you can do calculations that if you have rocks, rocks will have some endowment of radioactive elements like uranium, thorium, and uh, potassium-40. And all of these different radioactive isotopes will slowly decay through the years. And through that decay process, they release a little bit of heat. And that heat can accumulate in their deep interiors over time. And so we, we looked at different models. And you can these models predict that if these large objects have rocky cores, you know, cores at heart, deep in their interiors, then um, it's possible that they could generate high temperatures, high enough where you could have liquid water or you could have um, organic materials being heated up and chemistry could happen. Wow. And so these objects are not frozen balls of ice. They're not frozen balls of ice and rock. They are active worlds with some kind of geothermal process underneath. I mean, is like, do they probably have like a subsurface ocean as well? It's unclear at the current data. So uh, subsurface ocean is allowed by the data because one model of making methane would involve having a subsurface ocean and then you'd have hydrothermal processes where that ocean water could circulate through hot rock and then that water would be heated and you could then transfer that D to H signature from the water to the methane. So that's that's one possibility, um, but there's other possibilities too, where maybe you could just have um, different kinds of organic compounds, this primordial tar I mentioned, that could be cooked up within hot rock, but you may not have liquid water. But the fact that you're seeing this on the surface of these worlds means that there's some kind of cryovolcanism going on that's pulling it from inside the world's to the exterior. Yeah, or at least some type of a cryovolcanism or transport process has happened. We got to be a little bit careful because we see this methane signature today. We don't know when this methane was delivered to the surfaces of these bodies. 
Right. So, so the, the cooking could have happened, you know, it could be happening today. We can't rule that out, but the cooking could have also happened throughout geologic time. But when you see other worlds, like when we saw the pictures of, of Pluto from New Horizons, it was a world that was clearly undergoing some level of, there's still activity going on there. I mean, these huge glaciers of, of what, methane and ammonia, like, like there's something going on in these worlds and Eris and Makimaki are pretty similar to Pluto at this point. Yeah, Pluto was a real inspiration. And it's a very valuable lesson too, because we learned, I, I study other icy bodies like uh, the moons Europa, of Jupiter and then uh, Saturn's moon Enceladus. And we, we, we thought from studying those objects that you need this process of tidal heating where you need to have a giant planet uh, tugging at the orbits of these icy worlds in order to heat them up. But Pluto uh, flew in the face of that conventional wisdom because Pluto apparently, it doesn't, it's not orbiting a giant planet, but yet it appears that just the uh, radioactive decay of elements inside the rock is good enough or sufficient to drive a, a very dynamic geology. And so from that knowledge from Pluto, that, uh, that took away some of my apprehension from suggesting that maybe something similarly dynamic could be going on on Eris and Makimaki. Right. Now, I mean, does that mean, like, if it, if it is true, and if you go and you turn it on Quawar and you turn it on other various objects and you keep finding this ratio of, of methane, is this going to start to lead towards the possibility or the certainty that there is ongoing geothermal activity in any large-ish object in the solar system? It might. I, I think at some point uh, an object will be too small to support this kind of activity. Uh, interestingly, from the New Horizons mission to Pluto, we learned that Pluto's moon apparently had a subsurface ocean of water at some point in its past. And Pluto's moon Charon is actually smaller than Eris and Makimaki. So I'm tempted to think that um, Charon isn't small enough to stop that activity. And you can even go to smaller bodies to possibly still support this internal geologic activity. But at some point, you know, once you get to, to really, really small objects, uh, then they might actually look more like primordial snowballs than uh, geologically dynamic worlds. But it sounds like that cutoff is pretty big. I mean- It could be, or at least it's, it's, um, it's smaller than we thought it, it was in the past. Previously, we thought, you know, you had to be big like Europa or Titan. Or, or something like that. But now we're finding, okay, you can be even Pluto-sized or smaller than Pluto-sized, and interesting uh, chemistry can happen. So, I mean, when you think about, like, just the solar system, and then you think about all of the rogue planets that are starting to be discovered out there across the Milky Way, is it going to be the same story for these, like, I don't know, Jupiter, oh, sorry, not Jupiter, like say you've got a Mars-sized rogue planet drifting through the Milky Way, is it probably going to have some level of, of geothermal activity inside of it as well? Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Uh, you might imagine if there's a source of heat, you know, any kind of rocky world, Mars-sized will have a source of internal heat. And then if there's some source of water that can be melted, then yeah, you could have... Um, 
water existing as liquid, and then you could have water reacting with rocks, and that set, sets the stage for geochemical processes. The, the challenge, I guess, if you have all these bodies floating through interstellar space, is how do you how do you observe the signs of this activity? That'll be a real telescope. Key. Yeah, can you uh, identify these bodies, and then can you also then identify certain um, signatures of that chemistry on their surfaces, or if they have atmospheres in their atmospheres? Well, finding them, I mean, finding rogue planets is, is going to be sort of one thing, but finding, you know, as next generation space telescopes come online, habitable worlds, observatory, extremely large telescope, and maybe the generation after that, like at a certain point, we should be able to directly observe the icy exoplanets around other star systems. And it yeah. seems like naturally we'll see the same thing. We might, or, or we could even see something that we're currently not expecting that might be totally surprising. That would be better. Um, <laughs> so, so what's next for your research? I guess more objects? Uh, well, I, I'm going to continue to work on some of the um, trans-Neptunian objects. So J James Webb also observed uh, Pluto and Neptune's moon Triton. There's been some great observations of uh, Haumea. So trying to understand, you know, is, is this, a, this type of process a a common theme out there, or maybe there's some twists and turns where some of these bodies might have some uh, unique aspects of their histories that support these this very active geochemistry, but maybe other worlds have veered into different evolutionary directions. So I'll be looking at that. And then like you, you mentioned, um, exoplanets, I think that's a whole new frontier, and I'm, I'm very interested in what people might be finding there as well. Um. It'll be interesting. I mean, I can't wait to see those pictures of Pluto from Webb. Have you have you yeah. seen them? Yeah, I've seen. Them. I'm not the the lead investigator for yeah, those studies, yeah, yeah. but I'm I'm trying but to help with out there. Yeah. some of the scientific interpretations. But yeah, you you can see the signatures of interesting molecules on the surface of Pluto. So I think Pluto, in addition to what New Horizons told us, I think James Webb is going to further tell us more about the story of Pluto. It was such a short flyby, so they just didn't get a lot of, of you know, of information. Didn't see a whole hemisphere of of Pluto. So now, further observations can fill in those missing pieces. That's great. Uh, yeah, Chris. So, what are you obsessed with right now? Uh, there, there's many things. It's hard not to be obsessed with things in astronomy and planetary science because we're learning so much. Um, I'd say I'm, I'm probably most obsessed with exoplanets right now. I think I. I'm not really actively involved in what's currently, you know, the current data analysis side of things, but I, I'm, I, I'm staying, you know, in touch with the news and I, I'm completely astounded by astronomers that are detecting CO2 and methane and other interesting molecules in the atmospheres of exoplanets. I, I would have never imagined that we'd be there because just several decades ago, we were trying to detect molecules in the atmospheres of our solar system, and now we're finding them in exoplanets. Yeah, it is amazing how strong the signals are, the carbon dioxide, the carbon monoxide, the, as you say, the methane, the water vapor, sulfur dioxide, like all of these chemicals are showing up. They're screaming their, their presence in these atmospheres. And we're going from this time when we just didn't know anything about exoplanetary atmospheres to now having cataloged over a dozen 
eventually that number will cross a hundred, then it will cross a thousand. And we will just know so much about, about how different solar systems are constructed, either similar to ours or different. Yeah, it is really cool. And it reminds me a lot about how uh, planetary science developed in our solar system, where we first just kind of discovered things and we measured their masses and their sizes. And so we knew their densities. And that's where exoplanet science looked to be uh, like in the past decade. But now they're finding molecules. So I think people in that field are going to start to approach things like we've tried to do in this study on Iris and Makimaki, where you find some kind of chemical signatures. And now you're trying to figure out, okay, what does that tell you about the formation or history of a planet? And I think that's just really cool to start asking those kinds of questions about exoplanets. And and do you feel like the like the planetary science that that has been done so far will give the exoplanetary astronomers a lot of tools to to understand what it is that they're seeing? I'm hoping that that's that's one of the goals for our work. Is in this study we you know we try to look at all these ways where uh, Iris and Makimaki you know a planetary object could acquire methane, and we try to describe some of the different ways that you could tell it discriminate, you know, between these different sources. So I think that that could be a direction that might be useful for people looking outside the solar system is, you know, you find methane, we, we get all excited. And then the next question is, okay, wh what does that mean? Does methane come from some kind of chemical process? And I think that's really important because the, the holy grail is to try to figure out, okay, does methane come from a biological process? Like, you know, where we started at the beginning of this discussion where, you know, methane on earth mostly comes from life, the, the intestines of cows, for example. And if we're going to try to be able to answer the question, you know, are there organisms that might be um, producing methane on exoplanets, we're gonna have to be really careful that we're able to tell the difference between what's known as biotic methane from these different abiotic sources that we've looked in this particular study. Is there a, a ratio difference? Like, do cow burp methane have a different deuterium ratio than volcanic methane? Uh, for the D to H ratio, it's not that different. Where mm. it really starts to shine is if you can get the carbon isotope ratio, carbon huh. 13 to carbon 12. And so, so like... You were seeing methane, I guess. Are you? You're not able to get the. You, would you have been able to distinguish the carbon ratio on Eris or Makimaki? That was another beautiful feature of the James Webb data. Is there, there, um, the noise is so low and the spectral resolution is high enough that we were actually able to pull out a band for 13 carbon labeled methane. So we got a carbon 13 to carbon 12 ratio on Eris and Makimaki. Um, but one challenge is um, it's very difficult to get the kind of precision to try to hone in on um, biotic versus abiotic methane. So you really have to be able to determine that ratio to incredibly high precision. Right, right. That's, so the, just that's the, the next step is if you want to try to go beyond D to H is to try to get very high precision on carbon isotopes. And do you think, but do you think that's a pathway to to developing a biosignature? Eventually, I think it'll be one pathway. Um, maybe, I don't know if James Webb will be able to pull that off. Uh, there's been some studies suggesting it's gonna be difficult, but if we can start to develop the tools to allow us to get ready to make those measurements, 
that'd be a huge help. And like you mentioned, if, if maybe like ELT or some other next generation telescope comes online, then that'll be our, our the next goal yeah. that we want to try to go for. I mean, I think that is the, that's the great, I mean, we're talking about holy grails. I think finding like an, you know, a certain biosignature would be a huge step forward because right now it's all just so inconclusive. And it, it go, is. Yeah. Yeah. We found we it. Be really careful though, because um, it's so tempting to want to say, okay, we can find a silver bullet, but from yeah. studying the earth, there's, there's always going to be some kind of counterexamples. So the best strategy that a lot of people have decided upon is to try to find multiple bullets that aren't quite silver, but with all of them combined, you can start to piece together a strong case. Right. It has a sort of a silver sheen to all of those bullets together. Uh, Chris, it's absolutely fascinating work. And I love sort of how this lays the groundwork for future research as well. So uh, congratulations and good luck with the next time you get time on James Webb. Thanks, Fraser. Pleasure right. having be on the show. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Klein. I'm going to talk some more about my thoughts about this in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Stephen Filler-Munley, Paul Rohrbach, Abe Kingston, Hey Twilight, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofi-Lara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shiplin, Monzo, George, David Gilton, Andrew Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our supporters on Patreon. It feels very surreal that we're getting to this point where these telescopes are powerful enough that not only can they image the surfaces of these Kuiper Belt objects that are hundreds of millions of kilometers away from us, but they're actually getting a strong enough signal that they can determine the various chemicals on the surface. And this process of analyzing some really small, very distant object that's only seen in the reflected light, that is the same process as attempting to directly observe exoplanets, which were, is still in its infancy. We've only seen the surfaces of just a couple of exoplanets at this point. Um, you know, mostly we, we determine their presence through the transit method of the radial velocity. But with exoplanets, you just get that one pixel. And the question is, can you get a strong enough pixel that you can do spectroscopy on that pixel that you can determine the presence of the chemicals there? And once we enter this era of being able to study these planets, be able to see the chemicals that are on their surfaces, that's when this whole quest to find out if there's life there, to determine a biosignature that can maybe explain the presence of the chemicals that we see, that would be amazing. And so we are entering this realm now. And what has been done with James Webb so far, this is just kind of the beginnings of this new era in astronomy. Now, I've done a bunch of interviews about how we might study the atmospheres of exoplanets. So I'm going to link to some of them here. All right, we'll see you next time.